0: Hey guys, Nate Hale here. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you about a great offer listeners of the Conspirators can take advantage of. For a few weeks now, I've been using a terrific set of headphones from a Swedish company called Studio. Now, I've used a lot of different headphones in my day, and these are some of the best I've owned. My Studio Regents look, feel, and sound great. In fact, I recorded the episode you're listening to right now while wearing them. Listeners to the show can get 15% off their first order of, of a pair of studio headphones or earbuds by clicking on the link in the show notes and using the coupon code Conspirators15 at checkout. Thanks again, and now on with the show. By the time Poland fell to Nazi forces in 1939, the writing was on the wall for the western part of Europe which by and large had managed to avoid getting sucked into the rapidly escalating second world war. For a time the French and British armies believed they could hold back the German onslaught along the Maginot Line, but the German war machine was growing more powerful by the day and quickly picking up steam. And soon, like dominoes, one country after another fell under the control of Hitler's forces. Denmark, Norway, Belgium. Then that most glittering prize of all, France, were all overtaken by the German Blitzkrieg. But despite having Germans edging ever closer to their border, Britain steadfastly refused to surrender. Historians have long debated whether Hitler ever seriously considered an all-out invasion of Britain. Such an attack would have been costly, both in terms of manpower and resources and with Hitler's eyes suddenly turning eastward toward invading Russia. It's been debated whether he thought he could afford to further split his forces in such a manner. What is clear is that the Germans thought they could wear the British down by attacking the ports, warehouses, and shipping lanes in order to make it difficult for the country to feed its population. At the same time, German air forces were ordered to wipe out the formidable Royal Air Force, whose considerable might had proven to be a major thorn in Hitler's side. But the assault on RAF airfields, codenamed Eagle Day, didn't work as planned, and the German Air Force ended up losing nearly twice as many planes as the RAF did. With his air force greatly diminished, in 1941 Hitler ordered his planes to begin aerial bombardment of Britain in order to force them to sue for peace. The Blitz, as it came to be called, was the first time a major European population had ever come under such massive bombardment. The Germans dropped more than 50,000 tons of bombs over London and the British countryside, killing more than 43,000 civilians and leaving more than a million homeless. But the result was not the sort of mass panic Hitler had expected. He had hoped that public pressure would be so great on Winston Churchill that he'd be forced to surrender. Instead, the British people found new ways to persevere under the most terrible circumstances. Millions of ordinary citizens organized and became fire watchers or joined the home guard. Food rationing began, and displaced children were sometimes invited into strangers' homes in order to shelter them. At night, the lights were shut off all across London in order to make it difficult for the German Luftwaffe to find key targets. Whereas this proved to be a rather effective tactic, all that darkness also proved to be a prime opportunity for criminals looking to commit their illegal activities unnoticed. In 1939, the British opened the gates of the country's prisons and released any inmate with less than three months left to serve in order to both better delegate much-needed rations, as well as freeing up some potential new recruits for the British Army. But not every newly freed criminal chose to serve queen and country. With so many able-bodied young men heading off to fight, many enterprising criminals realized early on that the British police force would be greatly diminished, opening the floodgates to all sorts of criminal activity. For as much as the London Blitz brought out the best in people, causing them to pull together, it also showed the cracks in society as well. For every story of heroism in the face of adversity, there was another of those who chose to take advantage of the situation for their personal gain. Between 1939 and 1945, crime in London rose by more than 50%. Looting became commonplace, and many members of the Home Guard were issued rifles in order to shoot if necessary. Early on, the West End fell prey to a series of jewelry robberies in some of London's high-end shops. Thieves would sometimes outfit themselves in air raid precaution helmets and armbands, then break into shops and help themselves. Because so much theft was occurring during the nightly bombings, a thriving black market grew up practically overnight. In 1943, five million clothing coupons were stolen and the government was forced to cancel the program. By 1945, more than 114,000 black marketeers were prosecuted for crimes committed during the war. Along with all the theft and black marketeering going on, so did a thriving industry begin for the sorts of entertainment young servicemen were often looking for. Booze, gambling, and prostitution became commonplace. London became a simmering cauldron of vice and desperation. And the opportunities presented by all the chaos drove some people to commit some unspeakable acts. On a cold February night in 1942, the police were faced with an altogether different type of criminal, when a city already in the grip of fear from German bombs found something new to be afraid of, a brutal serial killer stalking London streets under cover of darkness. I'm Nate Hale, and the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, that and serial killers, and this is The Conspirators. Evelyn Hamilton was a 40-year-old chemist from Newcastle who lost her job due to wartime cutbacks. She had never managed to find a husband, and she had always worked to support herself. Despite the loss of her job, she felt she was luckier than most because she managed to secure a new job at a pharmacy in Grimsby. She arrived in London on Sunday, February 8, 1942, with plans to stay the night before moving on to her new job the next morning. She never made it. The following morning, an electrician on his way to work spotted an electric torch lying on the ground near an air raid shelter. He and his companion looked inside and saw a sight that would haunt them forever. Inside was Evelyn Hamilton's body, lying on her back in the gutter that cut through the shelter's center. Her skirt was hiked up, revealing her stockings and underwear. Her clothing had been torn, exposing one breast. She had been strangled. Her underwear and the top of one stocking were stained with blood. Rigor Mortis was just beginning to set in, indicating she had been dead for no more than a few hours. Detective Chief Superintendent Frederick Cherrill was the lead investigator on the scene. He was Scotland Yard's head of the fingerprint department. In spite of his senior position within the department, he insisted on working murder scenes himself. He was a man who loved puzzle and he was certain that most such puzzles could be solved through his chosen field of expertise. Fingerprinting was still a rather new investigative technique at that point. Although the use of fingerprints as a means of identification could be dated back nearly 4,000 years ago to the days of King Hammurabi, police investigators would not begin using fingerprinting until the late 19th century. In 1858, Sir William Herschel, a British administrator in India, began requiring that fingerprints accompany all signatures on civil contracts. In 1888, Sir Francis Galton, a noted British scientist, developed a classification system for fingerprints based on the works of Sir William Herschel. In 1891, Juan Vucetic, an Argentine police official, used Galton's system in order to solve a murder in his district. Within a few years, more police departments around the world began refining the techniques of both collecting and cataloging fingerprints for use in criminal cases. It was actually a former superintendent of Scotland Yard named Edward Henry, who in 1891 experimented with Galton's classification system and developed his own modified form called the Henry System that is still largely used today. Frederick Cherrill was the foremost expert on fingerprints in London, perhaps in all of Great Britain. He had joined the Yard's fingerprint department in 1920 as a young constable, and he'd worked his way up through the ranks. And now as he knelt before the body of this murdered woman, he took out his magnifying glass and went to work. He studied the bruising pattern around the woman's throat, hoping that it might reveal something unusual about the killer's hands. He saw nothing out of the ordinary, although he was able to determine that the killer had been left-handed. He looked up and spoke to one of the constables who patrolled the area. The constable told him he'd been through the area between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. and had seen nothing out of the ordinary. Officers collected the woman's belongings, which had been strewn about the bomb shelter, and delivered them to the fingerprint department for further analysis. Despite a thorough investigation, the only fingerprints they were able to find were the victims, indicating that the killer had worn gloves. At first, the murder on February 8th, while tragic, was still considered to be somewhat unremarkable. It wasn't the only murder that had occurred during the Blitz, and Cheryl feared it wouldn't be the last. One report had come in of an aircraft gunner who shot a superior officer over a dispute involving rations. In 1943, a man named Harry Dopkin would be hanged after murdering his wife and burying her body in a bombed-out church basement in an attempt to make it look like she'd been killed in the blast. In late September 1940, Ida Rodway, a woman in her late 60s, and her blind husband, Joseph, were bombed out of their home. The couple began sleeping on their sister's floor, but as the days turned into weeks with little or no hope in sight, Ida did what she thought would be the kindest thing she could do for Joseph. She slit his throat before turning herself over to the police. In fact, during the time of the Blitz, murder rates in Britain increased by about 22%, as many would-be murderers figured out that the chaos of war could provide excellent cover for their crimes. But it wouldn't be long before Frederick Cheryl realized there was something unique about the death of Evelyn Hamilton. By the next night, events took on a more sinister tone when another victim turned up that he soon realized was related. On Tuesday, February 10th, two meter readers came across a horrific scene inside a flat in Soho, central London. There they found the body of a woman... Her head was hanging over the edge of the bed, and a pool of blood had spread across the floor. She, too, was named Evelyn. This was 35-year-old Evelyn Oatley, the flat's occupant. She was the former wife of a poultry farmer from Blackpool who had come to London to pursue a career in the theater back in 1936. Things didn't work out as planned, and after the war broke out, she had been forced to work the streets in order to make ends meet. In London, street prostitution wouldn't become illegal until 1959, so at night during the war, you didn't need to walk far along the city streets to find a young woman engaged in the world's oldest profession. Evelyn had suffered a brutal assault. Whoever murdered her had at first attempted to strangle her, then, failing at that, went ahead and cut her throat. She'd also been sexually mutilated, using a number of items that appeared to have been found lying around the flat. An electric torch, a razor blade, a can opener, and a hair curler. Inspector Cheryl was able to lift a greasy fingerprint from one of the instruments the killer had used to mutilate the woman. From that, he was able to determine that the killer in this case had also been left handed, leaving him to speculate that the two crimes may have been committed by the same individual. It was unusual for a killer to have murdered two women in such close succession. It wouldn't be long before the London newspapers got hold of the story and dubbed the killer the Blackout Ripper, taking the name from the most famous British serial killer in history, Jack the Ripper. Even Frederick Cheryl himself would make the comparison to the killer from Whitechapel. He once wrote, Not since the panic-ridden days in 1888, when Jack the Ripper was abroad in East End, had London known such a reign of terror. Whoever the killer was, he was working fast and seemed to have an insatiable appetite for murder because by the following night, he attacked three more women. 32-year-old Mary Haywood was waiting in a Piccadilly restaurant for her boyfriend when a young man tried shoving some money into her hand and propositioning her. She told him she wasn't that sort of girl. Yet he was still able to talk her out of the restaurant and to accompany him into the street. He grabbed her and pulled her into a doorway and tried to kiss her. She tried shoving him away and telling him to stop. "'But the man pressed on, and then he put his hands around her throat and began to squeeze. "'She fought desperately against his grip, beating at him to no avail. "'And as her breath left her, so did consciousness. "'But then a torchlight lit up the doorway. "'A passing night-porter had come across the two of them and began calling out to them. "'What was all the commotion about? "'The man let go of Mary and let her unconscious body slump to the ground.' He ran off, dropping something along the way that would later prove to be a vital clue. But the young man wasn't satisfied with his sick needs. He continued cruising the streets, and this time came across another prostitute named Catherine Mulcahy. Catherine took him back to her flat, and when he attempted to strangle her, she managed to fight him off by landing a hard kick to the stomach with her boots, which she'd kept on throughout the encounter. She began screaming bloody murder for everyone to hear. The man fled the apartment throwing a handful of money in her direction as he ran off. By then the killer was frustrated and fuming. He roamed the streets feeling the need welling up inside him like something was going to burst. Soon he found Doris Jouinet. Doris was a bored housewife who didn't really need the money. She mostly just worked the streets for the thrill of it all. On February 13th, Doris's husband returned home in the evening from his job as a hotel manager, only to find his bedroom door locked and his wife nowhere else to be found. Police broke open the bedroom door and discovered a grisly scene. Doris had been strangled with her silk stockings, and the killer had ripped open her abdomen with a knife and razor blade. Once again, the killer had improvised his choice of weapons from items he found inside the flat. Right around the same time, just a few streets away, a young girl was about to encounter yet another horrific crime scene. Margaret Lowe was a 43-year-old widow who worked the streets in order to pay for her 15-year-old daughter's boarding school fees. The other working girls referred to Margaret as the lady, due to the fur coat she always wore and the refined air she had about her. She usually preferred her clients to be older men who were seemingly less prone to violence and more likely not to stiffer for the fee. But at about 1 a.m. on February 11th, she was approached by a handsome and well-spoken young man. She took him back to her flat, and that was the last time anyone saw Margaret Lowe alive. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Margaret's daughter arrived at her mother's flat planning to spend the weekend there, She was surprised to find the door locked and no sign of her mother. Neighbors called the police who broke down the door, only to discover Margaret Lowe's mutilated body inside. She, too, had been strangled and then cut open with all the telltale signs of the blackout ripper. In this instance, the killer had jammed a candlestick into her vagina. In spite of the number of fingerprints the murderer had left behind at the various crime scenes, Frederick Cheryl's men were unable to find a match to any known criminal's. Keep in mind, this was long before the days of computers, and comparing fingerprints was a long and tedious process performed by sharp-eyed detectives, comparing prints by eye, one after another. With the press seizing on the most gruesome aspects of the crimes, fear was spreading among young women throughout the city. Despite the almost nightly bombings going on all around, it was the string of murders that seized the public's attention for the week they went on. As far as serial killers went, the blackout ripper was unusual, because there was practically no delay between his crimes. In most cases, the killer would have a cooling-off period before ramping up again to commit another murder, but not in the case of the Blackout Ripper, who seemed ready to go again night after night. But the Blackout Ripper's murder spree was about to come to an abrupt end. Both Mary Haywood and Catherine Mulcahy had gone to the police and told their stories about the man who assaulted them. In Mary Haywood's case, the man had made a crucial error by leaving behind a clue that could be traced directly to him. It was an airman's gas mask, and inside was a serial number that led police to its owner. At first, the assaults on the two women were thought to be unrelated to the blackout ripper, but that would soon change. Gordon Frederick Cummins was a 27-year-old airman who had been in the RAF for six years and had risen quickly through the ranks. He was a married man, but he had a reputation among his fellow airmen as a womanizer. He was known to sneak away from the base in the early morning hours looking for booze and women. Some of the other guys nicknamed him the Count because of his impeccable manners and pretentious air he had about him. But it was all just a show. He'd actually come from a modest middle-class family in Yorkshire, no one knew that the well-mannered appearance he put forth hid the face of a monster. Inside Cummins's quarters, police found the belongings of several of the victims, including a pen bearing the initials of Doris Junet, a comb that belonged to one of the other women, and a cigarette case belonging to another. Cummins was soon arrested and charged with the murders. Frederick Cheryl fingerprinted Cummins at this time, noting that the man was left-handed, just as he deduced the murderer was. Cummins' trial began April 23, 1942, but his trial was interrupted when an error was made and the jury was shown the wrong exhibit. The judge ruled that this error would render the jury incapable of deliberating properly, and he dismissed the trial. A new trial with a new jury began a week later. During this trial... Frederick Charell was able to prove that Cummins' fingerprints matched those found on the gas mask and other pieces of evidence. Even further evidence showed that the gas mask also contained tiny pebbles and stones that could be traced to the bomb shelter, where the first victim, Evelyn Hamilton, was killed. Cummins' attorney tried to counter that his client resided in an open barracks, and any other airman had free access to Cummins' gas mask and other belongings, but the jury didn't buy it. It took the jury only 35 minutes of deliberation to find Gordon Cummins guilty. He was sentenced to death. He continued to profess his innocence, and he tried unsuccessfully to appeal the verdict. He was finally put to death by hanging on June 25, 1942. But with Cummins off the street it only proved to be a minor relief to the citizens of London, who were still in the midst of the Blitz after all. The Blitz officially lasted from September 1940 through May 1941. And although Western forces would eventually prevail and defeat the Nazis, for a while the threat of aerial bombardment persisted until Germany finally surrendered. A lot of history books will refer to the Blitz spirit as a way of describing how the Blitz managed to bring out the best in people. But the parts the history books seldom talk about are those who, in the face of all the horrors of war, allowed themselves to give in to the worst parts of humanity. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder if you're interested in picking up a high quality set of headphones, then I have a special offer you might be interested in. Studio is currently offering 15% off your first order to listeners of the Conspirators. All you need to do is use the coupon code Conspirators15 at checkout. I'll post a link you can use in the show notes. I have a pair of Studio Regents, and they're comfortable, really well made, and they sound great too. I also need to give some shout outs to my latest Patreon supporters. Special thanks go to Deborah, Jason, and Ryan for all pledging their support to the show. Everybody your support has proven to be a big help for me in getting research materials and upgrading my equipment. If you're interested in helping us out, I'll put a link to my Patreon in the show notes. Supporters can get all sorts of goodies, including t-shirts, thank you cards, stickers, magnets, and of course access to our exclusive patron-only minisodes. I have a really good spooky one coming up soon, as a matter of fact. I also want to thank all of you who have taken the time to leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts. I wish I could thank each and every one of you by name, but I'd like to at least call out a couple of you. A listener with a screen named Strazwife said, The Conspirators is one of the best out there. I've learned so much from listening to these podcasts. He keeps us entertained and interested in everything he speaks about. Listener AW286 says, Started listening to The Conspirators lately and cannot stop. The stories are unique and very interesting, but also very thought-provoking as well. A lot of these have inspired me to the point of researching them myself, which I believe is a sign of truly amazing source material. Nate Hale is one of my new favorite hosts, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. For creepy, interesting, and truly amazing stories from history and legends, you have to give the conspirators a listen. To that, all I can say is thank you so much, Strazwife and AW286, and to all my other faithful listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm both honored and humbled that this show has managed to strike a chord with so many of you. I promise to do my best to continue bringing you the best podcast I can do. If you haven't left me a review on Apple Podcasts, I encourage you to do so. It really helps the show in the rankings on the site and helps boost the numbers of the listeners we have. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. We're also available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to send me an email at theconspiratorspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks again. And I hope you'll join me again next time.